And that's a wrap on our second year of Sets and Search. This has been an amazing year of conversations with some of the very best digital marketers in the world. We've now launched over 90 episodes, and it feels like we're just getting started. This week, we're going to take a break from our normal one-on-one interview format to bring you a best-of episode. We've put together highlights from my conversations with some of the top experts in SEO, PPC, social media, CRO, web development, and more. For the last time this year, grab something cold to drink and join me for the best of Suds and Search 2021. Um, and as far as staying on top of things, I mean, that is um, almost as important in your role as anything else that you will do as far as optimizations and the account, things mm. like that, just because things change so frequently and so quickly. And every little change has a really big impact on us. So yeah, um, knowing your audience, I think of that as being kind of a, a two for one. So one is knowing your audience because you want to understand what they care about and make sure that you're messaging to them accurately and all that good stuff. But the second part is knowing your audience also helps you understand where your audience will be. So what types of interests should we be using to target them? What types of demographics should we be using to target them? placements, what what social channels did they use, um, especially on the B2B side, what types of affiliations are they involved with? Sometimes you can find LinkedIn groups about those affiliations, things like that. So knowing your audience is really the very most like basic first step that you can take. And it sounds so obvious because everybody's like, oh, I know my audience. It's 30-year-old females. Right. And then you're like, well, that's not very much information to go off of, really. Um, one, are you right. sure that it's only them? That's it. Uh, but two, why is it them? And what is it about that particular audience that really makes them a good fit for you? Because naturally, some of the people in that very specific demographic are going to be a good fit, but a lot of them aren't. So focusing in on what makes them a good fit and also what exclusions that you would want to make, make sure that you're going to spend your money as effectively as possible, but also that your messaging is going to resonate because getting in front of them isn't the only challenge. You not only have to get in front of them, you also have to interest them enough to convert them. Yeah, great question. So I like to categorize things into quadrants. So I like to look at what is working really well as far as cost efficiency goes, whether that is CPL or ROAS or whatever you're using to measure cost efficiency, what's going really well, but doesn't have very much volume that we could potentially support or grow through other channels. What is going really well, um, and maybe there's actually even room for more volume, we could potentially push more budget in that direction. What is um, not cost efficient, but it's driving a lot of volume, so we either need to make it more cost efficient and maintain that volume, um, or we need to find a way to replace that volume, but there's a lot of volume there, so we want to be careful about not just scrapping it. And then there are the other things that have low volume and low cost efficiency. And in that case, we're typically looking for something to either replace it or potentially if there's some kind of channel that could support it um, and try to improve it a little bit more, we could do that. But typically we're kind of looking to replace that. Uh, you've, we've seen it happen. What somebody says can uh, negatively affect the bottom line of a business and actually negatively, you know, cause other people to lose their jobs. So yeah. it, I don't think that it's, uh, you know, overstretching to ask people to be uh, to adhere to certain standards for a company. And that standard is going to be different for each company. But it is definitely uh, monitoring your key personnel is 
you know, at least have your CEO's name in a Google alert, have, uh, you know, anybody who is, uh, you know, out speaking for the company, um, just have them in a Google alert. So that when something does come up, you can get ahead of it. If it's, you know, if somebody misspeaks or something starts to go viral, I call them flashpoints when something starts mm -hmm. to move. And uh, it, it, a lot of times, if you don't get ahead of that flashpoint, then the damage is already done. And it's really hard to, uh, to go back and, and put that, you know, put that genie back in the bottle, if you will. You want to have positive items when people are searching your name. And uh, it's not always necessarily just even because it's going to be promoting business. But if a crisis does hit, when a crisis hits a blank slate, if you don't have anything out there, the crisis is going to win. And all of a sudden, when people are, Google, you know, we see it with B2B companies a lot, somebody will, something negative will happen. And then all of a sudden, you know, like we have one right now, and I'm not going to say who it is, but they have a lawsuit pending against them because mm -hmm. of some things that happened. They hadn't done anything. And for the first four, it took us four months to really start even seeing some impact of what the things we were doing because they had nothing. We were starting from scratch, creating a content strategy, uh, you know, mm -hmm. having to do all of these things. Whereas this company has been for years donating stuff to their local, to, to local mm -hmm. uh, charities. And they just never talked about it because they didn't, feel, you know, yeah. they didn't feel like, oh, we don't want to toot our own horn. Well, I kind of say, if you're not going to toot your own horn, nobody else is. Sure. The Streisand effect is uh, basically just being very careful to not create more problems than uh, with your response than are already out there. Um, really important to create those relationships with the influence. Most people are either scared to do it or don't want to take the time because it does take time. Yeah. And, you know, I always say, you know, like here, we're, you know, doing a virtual beer is a great idea to do that with an influencer, just mm -hmm. talk to them. But when the pandemic is over, or when you can, uh, breaking bread with someone is is absolutely one of the best ways to uh, solidify a relationship and get somebody on your side. Awesome. The link side, most people, especially if they're doing link building in-house or they've contracted or hired somebody who does kind of like mid to low level link building, you know, they'll get a little bit of a boost maybe, but they're seeing that they plateau and they just don't really know what to do about it. They're like, we don't really have, like I said, the resources to create this stunning graphic or this really interesting research that one of the bigger publications is going to be interested in. A lot of people kind of go the traditional PR route, which certainly has its place, especially if you're like a new company, even a new product or a new service and try to get traction there. But then that also dies out. There's just, it's tough to continue to maintain that level of interest in your company. So the benefit of doing this type of work is at any given time, if you're creating something original, newsworthy, uh, you're able to get that publication coverage even if your company is not doing anything thrilling at the time that's any different you might think it's fascinating but the general public or these news publications probably don't care a ton um and the links like i said it's kind of the dual benefit of google understanding the value of what you're doing and users and readers understanding that you're providing value so that's kind of like the 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 win-win situation of this tactic and I'm not even talking about like links to specific pages. Like that's a whole other ball game. I'm talking about links to their overall domain. And then there's that, there's a whole conversation we can get into about internal linking and how important that is because 
most of the time people are like, oh, I want to get links to this this page that it's high value to us and is where all our conversions are, but nobody wants to link to those pages. Really, you got to try to get links to your overall domain or other important pages and then link appropriately internally. Um, but yeah, you're looking to see where they're getting kind of their general media coverage, what kind of tactics are they using, and you can use tools like that to figure it out. You also don't need to get the exact links that your competitors have. That's not necessary. If you see a new approach to it, if you're like, oh, I can do this really cool report about XYZ, and I think that this publication would be really interested in it. Like, don't feel pigeonholed to do exactly what your competitors are doing, because that also just keeps you status quo rather than thinking outside the box and, and trying something a little different. Good. This is, this is a, again, I said I was not going to ask another newbie question, but here it goes. So you made a point that's like, what if your competitors are exclusively doing the press release PR? Do people actually still do that anymore? Is that still something, and is there any benefit to using one of those PR distribution sites that were really popular, I don't know, like eight years ago? Yeah, I mean, people still do it, and I don't I don't try to hate on it because it has its place. I just think it shouldn't be exclusively what you do, right? Like, you should totally do it if you haven't, if you're a new company, if you have some kind of very new product or service, like I said, if you have some kind of really impressive acquisition, like if it is news, then by all means, please do that. You should do that, uh, get whatever coverage you can. But I think a lot of the time where people fall into a trap is they're like, put a press release out for this and it's something that nobody's actually gonna care about. Like you care, your company might care, but you have to like sincerely look in the mirror and be like, does anybody actually care about this? What are you interested in? Start there. Then what do you think your audience is interested in? And you're basically creating a list of these hypotheses. Then you're digging in the data, doing the analysis to see, are you correct? Are you wrong? What's interesting about the results? Sometimes you're going to be doing that analysis and something entirely different is going to pop up that you did not expect. And that's, that's sure. gold. That's, <laughs> that's gold. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like what is going to be interesting to this publication's audience? Like that should always be now what's interesting to you or your audience, the publication's audience that you're trying to reach. Hopefully there's alignment between that publication's audience. Uh, if, if your marketing goal is more down the funnel, but it doesn't have to be if it's brand awareness, you care about the, the publications audience. So Stacker has built relationships with publications that trust their content that they syndicate to. So it's, it's been very interesting to kind of see all the different ways you can get at it. But fundamentally, if you don't think about this, then all the content you created is kind of pointless. If its goal was to get press, you're just not going to get it. Isn't that so sad, though? I mean, it's like, it's like I feel bad for those great pieces of content that nobody ever read. So, uh, With this new job, will it allow you to be at conferences and give presentations? Yes, and I love that part of my job. That means a lot to me that you said that. That was my first MozCon. I was thrilled. <laughs> that was a big career high for me. And yes, I will definitely continue speaking. I. It's not uh, something that... I really wanted to ever give up because not only does it, I just love speaking, as you can tell, I kind of can just like ramble on forever. Um, yeah. I mean, you guys are busy. Um, I respect people's time. I know my time. I'm so busy. Um, and I don't want people necessarily, if somebody could tell me something in less words, I appreciate that. And I, every, almost every single word that I type, I do it in a way that to be done in the shortest amount of time. And I think Google, it's the funny thing is Google wants to rank the long, long form content. I said this before, Google loves ranking the, the long form content, but yet what they know searchers want are the feature snippets, the 
two, three lines. And that's all they give them is the snippet of the content, the short form content from that long piece of content that they rank very well. But yet nobody wants it. Nobody wants to read that long form content. Um, they skip around. They have the headlines to make it jazz up. They stick in images and stuff like that. But if you ask anybody, any in the SEO world, anybody, and that's why Instagram is so popular and TikTok and stuff like that because people don't want to consume the long form stuff. They want their quick hit and get over with. And when a story like that comes out, do you get? Are you in the room with Google? Does Google talk to you? How do you, how, how does the sausage get made on search engine land? And take us kind of behind the scenes. So my malware jumps up. No, I'm just joking. Um, so <laughs> yeah, so some it depends. Like in the early days, like Florida, it was like I noticed a ton of SEOs in the SEO communities, you know, writing about my rankings. My rankings, something is happening. Also with Panda, this is before Google confirmed it. We were calling it something else. I think we we're calling it the scraper algorithm or something like that. Or basically, we were seeing Google making drastic changes, and the forums would literally explode. Same thing with Penguin. I would cover these updates before Google would actually announce them, okay. uh, based on the SEO community going nuts. Like my clients' rankings are going up or down. It's great or it's horrible. Um, my site's going up or down, and you would see this the, the community explode. Um, it was much easier back in the page rank days where Google would do these uh, Google toolbar page rank updates. Mm-hmm. We call uh, we used to call it the, the Google dance, not the physical dance, but the Google data set percentage would actually dance with new page rank scores and stuff like that. Um, then it became harder when Google stopped doing that in 2004, I think, or something like that, where we kind of didn't really see it. Uh, but then the you know, the rankings would change constantly, but drastic changes would be. You know, people would just discuss a lot, and I would say there's a Google update going on. It was unconfirmed, and then eventually Google started to confirm them. Sometimes Google will pre-announce stuff, like, um, and I might get a five-minute update or a ten-minute update saying from from somebody at Google saying, "Hey, we're going to announce something." I'd be like, on the algorithm side, so I'll pretty much know it's a core update coming, and I'll type as fast as I can, and then Google would post it on Twitter, and then I'll you know include the um, relevant information for Google and hit post. Yeah, I don't think it's a photographic member. I don't, I don't, um, I didn't do that well in uh, elementary school or I did very well in, high, in college, but not in elementary school. But um, I think it's more about if you type it out, like if you write it, you kind of remember it. And that's another reason why I kind of started blogging is because if you type it, you remember it. Now after almost, I think well over 30,000 blog posts, it's not, doesn't really hold on as much as, uh, as writing one or two blog posts. But um also, there's a search box. So if somebody asks me, is this new? Sometimes I'd be like, kind of looks new or maybe doesn't. And even sometimes I will write something that I thought was new that I actually covered maybe 10 years ago. Um, so even I get stumbled on that and I kind of slip up on that. But there is a search box on my site. You can do a Google site command and search for it. And usually it will come up on search at a roundtable if it's new or not. All right. A lot of what we tried to do was either do some of that manual stuff for people or at least give them a more standardized workflow so that you don't have to remember an imaginary 90-point checklist to build a brief mm. and content harmony. You go in and follow through kind of the default flow, and there's maybe one or two or three or four things that your team does differently than Content Harmony does it, and that's okay. You still don't have to remember the other 90 things that are missing. That yeah, that's really nice. Checklist. What we found is, and this is both what we found as an agency and then what I've kind of compiled through just anecdotal interviews, demo calls with a lot of other people in the same spot is a lot of people spend about an hour or two hours once building out a brief manually. And Mm -hmm. most of that time falls into two buckets. uh, Well, two or three buckets. The first step is they, they search for the keyword. They open up a bunch of tabs. They open up 
Ahrefs, SEMrush. They open up all the competitors. They open up a couple of like freebie side tools that they'll use to look up related information and things. So all of a sudden you've got 10, 20, 30 browser tabs open and it just takes a while to consume and compile and ingest all that information. And so that's the first time suck. The second one is that people, you know, you're going through all this as you're doing it, you're trying to do your best to kind of compile that research mentally and then also into a template. And so you're going through and you're basically copy and pasting stuff from all these different tools and tabs into a Google Doc. And that, co that copy paste stuff takes forever. You've got to do formatting, you know, stuff, things like that. And then at the end, what people end up doing is, all right, I've compiled all this information. I've kind of gotten a feel for the topic and the space. And now it's time to actually like write the outline, like the, the kind of core element of what you're passing off to a writer or a client on. Here's how the page should be structured. Not just here's stuff you should reference or that you should read, but huh. here's what the page should look like when you're done with yeah. it to target the topic effectively for Google purposes, for user reader purposes, you know, all that sort of thing. And so people get so tired of doing all this manual work for like an hour that they try and skip through the outline quickly. And that's the most important part is how that content is getting structured. And so opening up all those tabs, fetching all that research, that's scraping types of tasks. Like we can automate that with software or scripts, whatever. Copy and pasting all that stuff, the way we personally solve that is we let you highlight the stuff that sticks out from the research and it just shows up in your brief template. So you don't have to like copy and paste a bunch of stuff. Got it. And so that's where the time savings opportunity is. And what that allows you to do is instead of spending an hour reviewing all this stuff and copy and pasting, now we can spend five, 10, 15 minutes doing the actual data information ingestion and then jump straight into building out like an outline, the more critical part and spend more time on that. So just as much as time savings, it's also letting you spend more time on the part that matters. And like, um, yeah, I, told a few people it's like looking inside of my brain after working in SEO and content for <laughs> a decade. Like these are all the things I care about almost all the time. And, you know, some of them are more important than others on different pieces of content, but. Am I allowed to swear? Is this like, we're drinking beer? Is that sort of temp, temp my language? Totally fine. Yeah. Almost encouraged. Yeah. <laughs> they are exactly. amazing at making jewelry, but they are shit at marketing. Um, okay. And it's certainly pretty bad at SEO. Um, and so then they have all these things that, um, come through the email, which everybody gets like, you know, Hey, I can get to the top of Google for 50 bucks. And they don't know, you know, right from wrong and left from right. And so they would ask me, they're like, well, you know, should I, should I do this? Like this person's telling me they can sell me like, you know, 50 DA 50 plus links. I don't even know what that means, but it seems pretty good. Should I go for that? And so you'd start advising them. And I think, well, you know, this is still just like a drop in the ocean. There's still so many people out there. They get sucked in by all this kind of stuff. And it's like, right, how can I get? more good knowledge in front of the right kind of people. And if, like, if you're interested in this kind of stuff, just come and listen to smart people talking about stuff, sharing stuff. And if you take away one or two things, happy days. It's that a lot of the people that I speak to, they kind of, well, I get the most benefit out of when I get to, you know, talk to other people over a beer afterwards or over a pizza or over a, you know, a cup of tea or whatever it is, you know, we're English, we're all supposed to drink tea all the time. Right. Um, but that's the bit where they got the most value because then they, you know, they, they'd be an SEO and they'd talk to a developer and they'd be like, oh my God, like developers, they really grind my gears and da da my developer does this and this and this and they never do this and they won't do this. And then the developer will go, you know what, that's really strange. Like, cause I have this SEO, my God, they're annoying. They're always coming to me with these stupid little things and they bug me about that. Right. And, and I've got like, you know, the whole server's on fire and it's the site's about to fall over and they're asking me to implement like some random bit of schema and it, it's then they can kind of get together and they're like, oh, okay, yeah, well, maybe we should talk about this and I'll, you know, how could I present it differently? And 
suddenly conversations start happening and people start seeing things from different point of views and like you you know you're saying about your your friend saying you know those kind of people that you then make a connection with and then in six months time you have that oh i've got that strange question i don't know how to answer that that guy i met at that event or that yeah. woman i met at that event i bet i bet they'd know I, i'll drop them a line and see if they can help it's hugely beneficial yep. absolutely like my friend, the jeweler, so she gets 50 emails a month or whatever it is as a business owner from lousy SEOs trying to sell her stuff and trying to get her to buy things and like, you know, do you want this guest post? And can I guest post on your website? And it's just like, ugh, SEOs are just annoying, spammy, irritating people that do crap on the internet to try and trick Google. Um, and, that, you know, then if you're a good SEO, that kind of affects you. And that we're all kind of trying to push the boulder back up this hill with, you know, other people reigning crap yeah. down the other side pushing it back even the definition of bad is can be can be fairly loose right like you know one person's black hat <laughs> right. is another person's yeah. gray hat is another person's white hat is another person's like um you know so craig campbell you might um know, have heard about him he's a uh sure. I, I flatter myself a friend of mine but he he hates all that kind of white hat yeah. black hat gray hat kind of thing he's like you know the only thing it's important is a yeah. results hat so you know if, if it gets results yeah. and it's kind of like on the edges of the boundaries then Maybe it's, but as long as you, as long as you do it knowingly. And I am the personification of what is possible, you know, in this country, you know what I mean? To be able to go from, you know, uh, losing six years of your life, ex gang member, ex, you know, uh, convict, ex, you know, piece of crap, street kid, you know, violence, poverty, like all that stuff. If I could go from that and being in debt, because when I, I was in college at Ryder university, when I, when I went away to prison, so I defaulted in my college loan and all that stuff. So not only did I have that, my credit was shot and I was $50,000 in debt when I got out of prison at 20. Yeah, I was, I was, a, I was a hot prospect for people. You know what I mean? Like, oh I, my God. Well, I, this is, this is the other part of the story is like you started a company in 2004. So really yeah. not that long after you got out of prison, you look kind of look too young to have had a business for 17 years, but you're an entrepreneur. So you decided to bet on yourself and you did it young. So why not, you know, get a job that you're having all the success in the dealership. I'm going to move up the ladder, have some steady income. Just have a little. It's not how it's wired. Listen to me. I'm like, look, and I could just speak freely now for the first time in my life with stuff. Listen, I'm a natural born hustler. You know what I mean? And that doesn't mean gangster, violent. It just means that my mind operates differently. And so why would somebody at 18 years old figure out a way to fly through four different countries and import 10,000 pills of ecstasy? Here's why. Because in the nightclubs at that point, they were minimum 30 to $35 a pill. In Amsterdam, I was getting from $3 a pill. So again, that's been in, in, inside of me for a long time. Why am I selling counter for money? Because I get them 20 cents on a dollar and I can make X amount. So if I'm making, at Cherry Hill Nissan was the last dealership I was working at, I was making close to $160,000 a year in 2003 at Cherry Hill Nissan as the BDC director in one of the top, in the number one dealership, Nissan store in the Northeast region of the United States. But you got to think about this. If I'm, make, if I'm making $158,000, how much money am I making that dealership to be okay with paying me $160,000? At least six hundred dollars to $900,000 is what I'm generating in real cash and value. So my mind's thinking, if I could do that, why the hell am I working for this guy who's psychotic anyway, you know, and they've got their own issues and this and that. I, I could at least make what I'm making for myself. And God forbid I was wrong, I miscalculated, and I made less than that. If I only made 100000 at least I'm working for myself. So real quickly, after five, little, little over five years on the front line in the dealerships, I started my first company and then it's flipped right now. This is what a lot of people don't know either, Greg, is that me and my wife own 10 companies. 
Dealer Synergy is an eight-figure business, and we have two other multi-million dollar businesses. Half of our businesses are in the automotive industry, and half are in other verticals. My wife owns a company called Scar Food, which she's making a ton of money on, uh, and it's a product line in the beauty industry. We have a company called Bradley Property Management, which I have a multi-multi-million dollar real estate portfolio with rental properties, commercial properties, and all that stuff. Um, and with the way the economy is right now, we just, we just sold one of our properties and made a ton of money. In addition to that, we have a software development company that have been working on software for our industry in automotive called Syntech for like the last six years. If, I, if, if everything goes according to my plan and I'm pretty good at what I do, the setup for acquisition on that software will be over $110 million. I mean, just from that software acquisition that I'm working on there. Then I have Bradley Unmanned, you know, which is a company. Then I have my conference company. Then I've got the Dealer Synergy company. And then I've got, and then I've got, and I've got. So I've generated in personal income for myself of around $50 million. You know what I mean? So that's, that's me. So yeah, from where I came from to where I'm at right now, and I feel like I'm in the best shape of my life. You know what I mean? I'm in the best Crazy. position of my life and I'm only 45 years old. So this is only the beginning. Like, yo, I, I hear every morning I wake up right now, I hear Eminem eight mile, I got one shot. So I'm maximizing the major publicity of this to catapult me into the mainstream Tony Robbins arena. That's awesome. Thank you. So I actually pitched in, I pitched in a completely different talk to MozCon and <laughs> it was all agreed. I was working through it with the team. It was all going well. Um, I pulled the deck together and something just wasn't gelling. Like mm -hmm. it was a very tactics based talk. And two weeks before the presentation, I went to the MozCon team and said, this doesn't feel right. It's not quite working for me. Um, when I speak, I have to like, it has to, it has to link into something that like the agency has gone through or make it really genuine. Like it has yeah. to be a journey that we've been on. Um, so I went into the error boardroom with Paddy, my boss, and was like, this is what I want to talk about. That I want to talk about Era's journey and how we've kind of gone through this link building digital PR storm thanks to COVID and how now we're coming out the other side of it because it has completely changed the industry um, especially within the UK it's far more competitive now the news agenda is far more unpredictable there are so many different topics dominating it that looking back to look forward was really important um like I laugh and joke and say that my my goal is to basically be like a snowplow and just get all of the things mm. out of the way for the experts so that they can do their job so in order to do that it hasn't been easy um like going back to that point around personal growth I had to let go of a lot and I had to learn how to let go of a lot um which yes you know there were some sleepless nights but I have an amazing team around me I couldn't do my job without um you know our head head of digital our head of creative and PR and the team leads that they've got um and I'm really thankful for the journey that they've been on with us as well you know they've trusted the decisions that we've made and that we've come through but yeah it's been it's been a real eye-opening experience it, it takes half the time to pivot something that's already live on site than to come up with something completely new. Right. And also the clients are really happy because you're making that content again, work harder. Now, we all know the time and effort that goes into campaigns and you wanna launch it because you've produced it and you're excited about it. But sometimes in that split second, you have to put your ego to one side and go it's not the right thing to do and we should hold off we should let the dust settle and you know what clients might be frustrated but it's all for the greater good because once you let that news agenda die down you can make some small tweaks to your campaigns and you can ensure that it goes off and delivers in terms of you know link building outputs and stuff like that 
we are we have all gone through some crazy times in the last kind of 12 to 18 months and you know things are definitely on the up and as we get to used to this whole new normal that everybody's talking about um just believe in yourself trust your gut and your instincts you're the expert at what you're doing take a breather not everything has to be done at 100 miles an hour and you know things will come good but yeah